Untitled Beatles podcast. Okay. So, I mean, maybe we start like we do every one of these. What did you think <laughs> I would do at this moment? <laughs> Alex P. <Pekino. With> tears. <laughs> That's right. As used in an episode of Family Ties by famous Philadelphia bar band singer Billy Vera. Is he a Philly guy? I don't know. I only know that song from Family Ties. That was his theme with uh, Ellen, right? That was his girlfriend. Yeah. Who I think he married in real life, right? That's right. Yeah, well, welcome to the Untitled Beatles podcast. As promised, I'm Tony, and I'm TJ, and we had a we had a great night for you. This it's been it's taken 48 minutes to get this started, so we're already yeah. in an especially punchy mode. Well, today we thought we would tackle. Yes, tackle. No, no, I don't want. To, I've said that before. <laughs> yes, we're gonna get real aggro about the Beatles Decca audition. This is a uh, a fascinating record in that I feel like we only choose records that are hard to find or stream or get because other than a few tracks on Beatles Anthology, you can't find any of these songs legally authorized by uh, EMI. They've been on bootlegged since the early 70s, if not before. But uh, yeah, these the Deca Audition, I actually am holding in my hand a, a CD from Japan called The Silver Beatles. Oh. That features the entirety of the deco. Excuse me, not only twelve of the fifteen songs are on this, but it's one of the first Beatles CDs ever made from nineteen eighty five. This is one of the first Beatles CDs I got, so it's been available as a bootleg forever. But yeah, man, if you want the Beatles deco edition, except for the three or four tracks in Anthology One, you will not find this anywhere legally. Anyway, yeah, I mean, you can definitely stream it now on YouTube and. But, you know, you kind of have to piece it together. Like one person posted like eight songs and you can, you know, call the other seven from other sources. Yeah, it's not easy. Right. It's not just like, oh, I can flip on my Pandora or whatever and stream it. No. No. Can't do it. It's interesting, right? So this is New Year's Day, 1962, pre-Ringo. So it's John, Paul, George, and Pete. And they all drove down. Neil Aspinall was the driver who's stuck with them. I think he, is he still with us or do we lose him? I forget. I think Neil Aspinall passed. Uh, yeah. I think the early two thousands, cause that's when a guy named Jeff Jones took over that role for Apple. Got it. But I know Neil Aspinall survived through the anthology and I think made it through the anthology book in 2000. Yeah. Cause he's on all the anthology DVD clips and all that. So he drove them down. I guess there was some snowstorms. So, there's some dispute on this. I've read that either they arrived just in time for their audition, which was either at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., depending on which source you read. Or according to John Lennon, it took 10 hours, but they got there around 10 p.m. just in time to, quote, see the drunks jumping in the Trafalgar Square fountain. Or Trafalgar Square, I yeah. think. Yeah, however you say that. I always find I think they should rename it because it's just a clumsy word. <laughs> they should call it Jones. <laughs> me and mrs jones mrs jones so what is it trafalgar trafalgar i think yeah okay go trafalgar yourself then And then so Brian Epstein shows up, but he takes the train. He did it separately. And so they show up at this audition. I guess, you know, they're nervous. They have about an hour to record. But then I've also read that they stuck around for lunch and recorded some more. That's a story I'm familiar with. Is that they initially had an hour, 
but they had so many songs that Brian Epstein kind of helped select with the band songs from their club days, from when they were just gigging all the time that they knew backwards and forwards, which is kind of what the first Please Please Me album, the first British album was as well. Um, of course, much more refined in that year's time. And they had a much better drummer. And that's one thing I want to say off the bat, and I say this to a drummer, there is no greater case for Ringo Starr over Pete Best than this record. Yeah. Uh, especially in the songs, and there's several of them, that Ringo also played both on record and on the BBC stuff. The kind of drumming that Ringo supported the Beatles with that we all take for granted is nowhere to be found on Pete fucking best. This entire record is a case to have canned him. And and I understand <laughs> this is not a cool thing to say, but I'm glad Decca didn't sign them. If I were Decca, I wouldn't have signed them. This is not a good demo. You hear fits and starts of what makes the Beatles the Beatles, but this is tentative and a bit restrained, and uh, it's some of Paul's early crooner instincts. It's more crooner Paul than rocker Paul. This is not a super impressive demo. Yeah, it's definitely not their best work by any stretch of the imagination. Also auditioning that day was another group called Brian Poole and the Tremolos, or is it the Tremelos? I don't know. Trafalgar. Uh, Mike Smith was an A&R guy over at DECA and he went all the way up to Liverpool, caught them at the cavern. I think it was December 14th, 18th, somewhere around there. Didn't sign him, but said, why don't you guys come on down to London for an audition? So they did. And here he was, I guess he showed up late, which kind of ticked off the Beatles. <laughs> he was hung over, I think. Yeah. Right? Well, it was New Year's day, right? So yeah, he was partying. That's what the U2 song New Year's day is about is oh, that's... Mike Smith showing up drunk. <laughs> To the Beatles' Decca audition. That's such an important song, too, so that's good to know. A lot of YouTube <laughs> trivia. Sunday Bloody Sunday is a song about Chick-fil-A. Well, Mike Smith shows up, records them, and uh, he has a choice to either go with the Beatles or go with uh, Brian Poole and the Tremellos. And because the Tremellos were local, he went with them instead of uh, the Beatles. And they received the infamous letter from Dick Rowe of Decca Records, who says, quote, guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. Such a famous line. Yeah. Now, he denied saying this, I guess. I mean, so who knows? But doesn't that letter exist? Haven't we seen that with our eyes? I don't know. I always thought that was a Brian Epstein story. Mm. Yeah, it was forever attributed to him. And Decca, while a pretty successful record company, I mean, watched Parlophone in England and then, of course, EMI Worldwide just make money hand over fist. And I think that label then was soon folded into MCA. I think it was MCA who acquired the Decca catalog. Is that right? Okay, that makes yes, that makes sense because of the Who and all that. Yeah. Remember when Who albums started to come out with the label had the rainbow on it on the record? You knew you got like a late <laughs> era pressing on MCA. Yeah. Same with Steely Dan was on ABC Records. It was cool <laughs> to get like a, a Katie Lied with a rainbow and cloud on it. <laughs> this is too deep. I'm going to go call my therapist. Take care, guys. So that's the story. They did not get picked up. They did not get signed by Decca Records. And I agree with you, TJ, 100% that I think they made the right choice. If the Beatles had gotten signed, history would be forever changed. I don't even know if Beatlemania would have ever happened. They get signed. That means they're going with Pete Best. That means they never even 
really reunite with Ringo. And they might have written, I want to hold your hand, maybe, but I don't know. I think the songs would have been written, but not being under the eye of George Martin, the most improv reference alert, uh, the most yes, Andy producer in the history of music, his ability just to take their ideas and not say we got to change it, but say yes, and let's also do this with that. I love Please Please Me, guys. Let's speed it up. He served as a producer and a director, and as we talked about on several songs, a piano player. Yeah. And in some indelible Beatles moments, I called him an episode or two ago, I think when all said and done, he's the real fifth Beatle because his contribution, had they not found him, the songs would have been there, but would the production and the ability to just let them be who they were have happened? I doubt it. I really doubt it. And it was because of this DECA audition, they got to keep it. They got to shop it around to other labels. It actually scored them a publishing deal. And that's how they got the attention of George Martin, who was willing to take a chance on them. And again, that doesn't happen if they stay with DECA. I want to be very clear here because I started this out kind of crapping on the music contained on in their demos. I stand by it. I'm also aware that this is John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison still finding themselves. But there's a reason I think this thing hasn't been issued formally by Capitol. And in fact, on the anthology, I think it's Searchin' is the first song they use. There's an interview that plays over the intro. Right. So the only time it's been released by EMI, there's a narration. You don't even get a clean edit of that. So it's clear that EMI is like... This is raw. This is early history. This does not ever need to be released in legal form. I'm glad that they did, though. I, I, the selections they picked, I do like. And, uh, well, yeah, let's, should we get into the songs? There is some dispute as to which order the songs were played in. Uh, we decided we're going to just choose what's on the Wikipedia and the Beatles Bible or whatever as the order in which they performed them. So apparently it may have kicked off with Till There Was You which did make, you know, with the Beatles. It made their second album. Not only that, as we've talked about, it was one of the most indelible songs from their Ed Sullivan show performance for the first time. I think it was a number two song, After All My Loving, which showed Paul McCartney singing a standard and made parents around the country think, oh, maybe they're not freaks after all. Maybe they're good young men. There were bells on a hill But I never heard ringing no, I never heard them at all Till there was you There were birds in the sky But I never saw them winging No, I never saw them at all Till there was you And there was music And wonderful roses They'd send me in sweet fragrant meadows of dawn And you, there was love all around But I never heard it singing No, I never heard it at all Till there was you Yeah, what do you think of this version? Uh, clearly, Pete Best rushes on the drum fills. You can feel the song like, whoa, <laughs> goose up. He's basically playing a straight four, not the kind of samba that Ringo brings to it. 
Does that sound about right? Yeah, he's he's pretty like poundy. He's more of like caveman, not the Ringo star-studded Ringo vehicle caveman that we. Shug <laughs> shug, Tony. Know what I mean? Yeah, but he's just kind of banging away on quarter notes mostly. I mean, he's he's rolling here and there, so it's not like he's the shags or whatever. You know, he's not like a hundred percent incompetent. It's just that compared to Ringo, he just doesn't measure up. And I've heard he's a nice guy. In fact, he was the first Beatle to ever come on the Letterman show. <laughs> Back when it was still like early NBC, like he was on yeah. early. Those clips are great. I think it was their first season. I think it was either 82 or 83. So yeah, somewhere in there. But yeah, he was really nice. Very soft-spoken. I don't think he wanted to be, you know, all the fame and all the, the craziness. Oh, why would he have wanted all that money? You're totally right, Tony. <laughs> It is kind of, we don't need to, we can do a whole Pete Best episode, I'm sure we will, just so we can listen to Best of the Beatles together <laughs> and hear Pete Best Band sing Hold Me Tight. Not the Red Rose Speedway version, though, that would be, <laughs> Dave Dexter put Red Rose Speedway Hold Me Tight onto Best of the Beatles. <laughs> Figure that one out. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it really, it's a sad story. I mean, he is, uh, there's nothing comparable in, in history to missing out on that level, but the songs Ringo played on, this is one of them too. Granted, the studio version is Ringo and the Bongos, but Ringo's drumming is what spices up this song. You know, Paul in this version, he's got that kind of crooner voice, almost like he's really mastering mm -hmm. the Peggy Lee. He hasn't quite come into his own as a balladeer by this point. Uh, George's solo in the break is is close to the record. Do you kind of tell it's still being developed? There's a second solo that doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, there's two solos on this one. It's like the extended dance remix of Till There Was You. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tentative and it's slower than the version we've come to know and love for all these years. Except when Pete does a drum fill, then it's the, then it goes up to 170 BPMs. Right, Pete best picks up drums at the end. You can hear. <laughs> yeah, at the end, it's that like, oh my god, let me let me just get to the end of the song, woo! And you hear a sticks click at the end too, during the cymbal decay. Right, yep. <laughs> totally, totally. And my note is Pete best picks up tempo at end, but you can hear his lack of skill. Is what I've written down. Yeah, it's true. One other thing I'll say is that you were alluding to the way Paul was crooning. You can hear it when he says music and he yes. adds like a K to the end of music. <laughs> that and he and Sinatra are the only people I've ever heard who can make consonants sound like vowels on the word love. <laughs> his V goes on. It's 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 fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you can shave yourself with that V. <laughs> Why don't you shave yourself with that V, guy? <laughs> there was love. Then we get into the hit from the murderer and musical genius at one point, Phil Spector. To know her is to love her with John taking the lead vocal on this. Yeah, it's a funny mix, too. Like, you can tell it's, like, almost, like, mixed on the fly. Like, certain, the vocal comes in real hot. Uh, yeah, the mix is real strange. Like, there's no compression on it. Yes, the mix is very weird. I don't think they were paying much attention to the mix when they were recording these things very quickly. Right. It's an audition. Even on Live at the BBC, this is one, and it's a great song. It's one that I've always felt like John sang tentatively. For as great as John was at so many covers... I never felt the conviction in his voice of this compared to say, you really got a hold on me. Yeah. This is one where John always sounded tentative. And on this early audition version, he almost sounds flat. It's like John Lennon without confidence. To know, know, know her is to love, love, love her. Just to see a smile makes my life worthwhile. It's just to know. 
and you read they were nervous, rightfully so, which I mm -hmm. think this allowed them to be way less nervous and grab that Please Please Me marathon session by the balls a year later, right? Because they'd gotten yeah. this one uh, kind of out of the way. They'd been in a studio. They'd done an audition already. Right before the bridge on the BBC version of this, Ringo starts cooking and something Pete Best can't even dream of. The feel and the taste of Ringo going into the bridge of the song, check out the comparison, because Ringo just accelerates it, but in a way that the band jumps on at the same time. He doesn't feel like he's fighting the tempo. The band's like, fuck yeah, we'll go there. Pete Best couldn't manage that in a million years. Yeah, that middle part's my favorite part of the song. The rest of it does sound like the, the band that, had the hit with it was the teddy bears i think right and that's exactly what that song sounds to me like a, a stuffed animal in like a teenage girl's room like it's hard to be a man <laughs> <laughs> you know what you come on like a dream Ringo, don't do that one anymore, Ringo. You know what I had, though? When I was a kid, I had one of those Harris Bank lion dolls with the yes. glasses. We have one of those now. I had a friend who used to, I put up some Facebook posts a bunch of years ago about, well, what a shame that my son would never know who the lion is. And he got sent one. They still have one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I loved it. When I was a kid, I loved that thing. I didn't, I didn't know it was affiliated with a bank or whatever. I just thought it was a great, it was a big doll for a kid it was a huge doll. it was a cool lion with glasses which always felt kind of cool yeah man i thought you were gonna say you had a teddy ruxpin which was the <laughs> no. doll that you put a cassette tape into and it would it was always fun to put in like nwa or the jerky boys yeah. or andrew dice yeah. clay into a teddy Metallica. ruxpin <laughs> anthrax yeah, that's like older brothers did that for sure hi my name is teddy ruxpin can you and I be friends? Yeah. I really enjoy talking to people. Then we get up into, uh, oh yeah, one of these songs, Take Good Care of My Baby. They give this one to George. This is a Bobby V song. It's one of those uh, Carol King, Jerry Goffin hits. And not the best Bobby V song. To me, there's a great Bobby V song called The Night Has a Thousand Eyes that Magic 104 would play at like <laughs> 1.15 in the morning in the summer of 86. Don't, don't ask how I know. 12-year-old me staying up all night listening to oldies, just crying. Deep oldies. Shining out. I love deep, deep oldies. All oldies all the time. Magic 104. Here's the Vandellas without Martha. What? what who's listening to this? Um... <laughs> But yeah, this one of the worst things about this, the awkward triplets before the key change in this thing, which we now present to you here. The triplets right before they do the key change is so awkward and forced and stiff. I wrote, I would have turned them down, too. <laughs> Yeah, man. It's I mean, it's a corny song. It was it was that corny time actually between when Elvis joined the army and rock and roll had like kind of this drought and it became about like well-groomed nice boys. Frankie Avalon. Yeah, all that pap. Yeah, I will say this song does end with that famous Beatles sixth chord, though. Yep. And it's cool to hear that. Like that actually still sounds the same as like something on with the Beatles or whatever. They had that part nailed down. <laughs> Well, and that is what's fascinating is you hear a couple moments where things end on a six or on a minor seventh that you know are, are forthcoming. Yeah, this album is crucial to understanding Beatles history, but there's so many great Beatles podcasts out there and so many great people who, as the years have gone by, are more honest about the Beatles. But it's okay to love them and not be apologists, right? 
Well, then it's uh, Hello, Little Girl, the first song written by John Lennon, question mark. Yeah, and it's credited to Lennon and McCartney because that's the deal that they made. But yeah, allegedly, this is the first one written by John. He wanted it to be like a 1940s tune. I read in a couple places, and I didn't know this, so we researched the show, that there's actually a weird home demo of this with Stuart Sutcliffe. I've never heard it. Oh, yeah. That'd be something to try and track down. That's something, you know, doing the show... We both have spots of knowledge and spots where we don't know, so we try to do homework. And there's every once in a while a revelation like that is pretty cool. But what's interesting is the Paul and George harmonies over John's lead in the verse is another cool early Beatle moment. Those tight harmonies kind of uh, portend what's coming. Yeah. And even as a slight first John Lennon stab... You can hear where their songwriting's going. There's interesting changes. It feels a bit like an Everly Brothers song, which is a compliment. It's it this this is a neat moment in Beatle history. Hello, little girl. Yeah, apparently he gave it to that band, The Foremost, who had a hit with it, and George Martin actually produced it. Yeah. They were buddies, and then, yeah, actually I read recently that Paul McCartney, they gave him a couple songs. They also recorded that other John Lennon tune, I'm In Love, which is one of my favorite Lennon-McCartney songs that they never recorded. The songs they gave away. There's a lot of great yeah. ones. Gee, we should do a podcast on that one day, Tony. <laughs> that's like a four-parter, because there's a ton of great songs. There's a lot of them, yeah. Well, that's one of them. That's one of them. But yeah, they were a funny band, I guess. And the Beatles kept giving them hits, but I guess they just didn't take things seriously. They were like a musical slash comedy act on stage, and they just never took anything seriously. And Paul's like, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> now, you are also a musical and comedy act. Yeah. i'll tell you what it's hard to do comedy like in an indie rock club you know where people are drinking and standing and talking it makes sense with loud guitars and this and that and when you the volume goes from 10 to 2 to do something comedic it i don't know it's hard i really tried hard to merge comedy and indie rock (laughs) in the early aughts when it does happen it's great and it's you know, look at the early Beatles melded comedy and rock. I mean, even wearing like uh, primitive stuff like John wearing the uh, the toilet seat around his neck and coming out in sure. a diaper like Mock Shao. Yeah, the Mock Shao, Mock Shao. They took it seriously while fucking around. And it's one of the things that made the Beatles the Beatles. They're all comedians on some level. Right, right. And you saw it then come out way later and like things like, you know, my name, look up the number. Yeah, they definitely had humor. You've always said your favorite on-screen Beatle moment, I don't want to blow a future pod, is Give My Regards to Broad Street. Uh, the McCartney track in that, what did you compare it to? Was it Liam Neeson? Was it Schindler's List? I'm forgetting. But you had some powerful comparison for how Paul's delivery of I think they stole the tapes is just, it's on. <laughs> can't wait to watch that movie with you. I can't wait. Then they cover Buddy Holly. 
crying, waiting, hoping. This is a George lead vocal. It is cool that they actually did. They almost gave George as many songs to sing as John and Paul. This would give him, uh, you know, three or four songs where he's singing lead on this this record. This is a great song. I love the Buddy Holly version of this. I love the original Buddy Holly version. The one that was in all of the greatest hits compilations was the one with overdubs from the mid-60s. I like the one that doesn't have the orchestra on it. But this is a great one. And, you know, there's another reversion of this, Tony. Marshall Crenshaw mm. sings this as Buddy Holly on the La Bamba soundtrack, which is a great soundtrack. Oh, yeah, man. I take nothing away from all those Richie Valens originals, but Los Lobos taking those songs on in the 80s is under fucking rated. It's a great album. Among the songs on there is Marshall Crenshaw, who is in Beatlemania doing Crying, Waiting, Hoping. And uh, it's, a, it's a great take. Crying, waiting, hoping you come back I just can't seem to get you off my Yeah, they played this on the BBC, and then it, they later uh, resurrected it for those Get Back sessions. Somewhere in there, they dusted it off. Sloppily, like all those songs in the Get Back sessions, just sloppy and hard to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Get Back sessions are the worst things the oldies jamming are the worst things the Beatles put on record since the Decca demo. And maybe 12-bar original. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think we're going to get some Disney sparkle dust all over those get back sessions and they're going to sound like Abbey Road Part 2. <laughs> it's a great point. It's a great point. <laughs> Apple, EMI, Calderstone, Sony, Universal, whatever it is, is coming up uh, with a plan to make the next three generations of Beatles fan think that was the happiest phase of their career. Then we get to another original. See, I love these originals. So this is a Paul song. I like this one a lot. Love of the Loved is what I'm talking about. He ended up giving it to Scylla Black, who uh, recorded it in 63. But yeah, this is one of those like interesting chord progression songs that I always like. And there's like a half step down thing going on in there. I dig it. Uh, this is Scylla Black's uh, version of this was also produced by George Martin. So that's George Martin nice. producing two songs from these Decca sessions that the Beatles wrote for other artists. Poor Paul McCartney song. We disagree here a little bit. I think it's a poor song performed poorly by the band. I think they're clearly either not into it or not confident with this one. And this is another one of those songs that the Beatles version of this never officially released. This is only from January 1 to 62. It's only existed as a bootleg since then. I think that's why I like it, because it's, it's new to me. I wasn't that familiar with the full DECA audition, to be quite honest. I, uh, for some reason I was like, oh, those are the only songs that exist. We're on the anthology. I just recently heard this. So this one stood out. It's amazing that you're hearing it in this context now. And that makes sense because the Beatles have taught most people for 40 years, if not longer, that these don't exist. They're only on random bootleg labels. 
But uh, yeah, so the not one of my favorites, and um, I actually like the Silla Black version, but this one just not a great Paul song to be performed kind of poorly by the band, by the boys. And then we get into one of my favorite songs that they perform, Besame Mucho. Yes. This would be my least favorite version of it, however. Okay. <laughs> this I My note is maybe the best of the DECA sessions. Best of the DECA sessions, but that yeah. version that's on Anthology is yards, <laughs> yards better. Yar. <laughs> Tony the Pirate, yar, it's better. <laughs> but I also prefer like the Get Back session version, which is like a jokey version where Paul turns operatic with it. That's at least fun. Oh, I've always liked this song. Uh, I guess their version's based on the Coasters version. And I actually do think Pete's drumming is decent on this. In fact, I use the word good in my notes. Cha-cha boom! Pesame, pesame mucho. Each time I give you a kiss, I hear music divine. So pesame, pesame mucho. You and I are on a different page tonight because, <laughs> and in fairness, I went back and I compared this to the live version in um, Hamburg with Ringo on drums. Listen to the way Ringo opens up his playing on the chorus of this. <laughs> Whereas Pete yeah. just doesn't vary fucking anything. Ringo is basically the same kind of backbeat for the verse of the song. When that chorus yeah. opens, Ringo just starts lighting it up. And I'm like, yeah, it's another great Ringo versus Pete moment. You're right. You're right. I had actually forgotten about the Hamburg performances. Yeah. Did I say Hamburg right? <laughs> it's Hamburg. All right. This is a song they seem to like a lot. Searching. Yeah, they were huge fans of this song. Did you hear the story about this where like they tracked down the one guy in Liverpool who was known to own the single? Like there's one single available <laughs> in Liverpool and they like went up into the hills or something and basically like stole it from him. Like, we need this. You don't have the responsibility to own this. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's a, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a Paul story, yeah. So they took it off of him and learned it, and they loved this song. Searching. Paul's got the vocal on this. Yeah, this, I think, is one of the best of the sessions. It's a Lieber and Stoller song. Uh, also, we mention musicals every week. Right. This was in Smokey Joe's Cafe, the Lieber and Stoller musical in the mid-90s. Yeah, man. Great coaster song. It's one of my favorites of these sessions. 
quick little anecdote about my Beatle collecting. When I I got at Beatle Fest, I think eighty five or eighty six, a forty five that didn't look like a bootleg that had searching on the A side with a picture sleeve and three cool cats on the B side. Oh wow! So when I was, as I was learning the Beatles, I always thought it was part of the official thing. So I've always looked at those two songs as being like. Oh, it's the earliest Beatles record. That's so cool. Because it didn't feel like a bootleg as a kid. So both those songs I love. And this cover, so much joy in Paul's voice. It's, to your point, one of McCartney's all-time favorite songs. The Lennon falsetto on this is funny. Yeah. When he's singing um, about uh, Bulldog Drummond, not on different strokes. <laughs> now the world don't move to the <laughs> Alan Thicke sings on that. <laughs> it totally does. By the way, Casey, our producer, one day Tony and I will regale you of stories about Alan Thicke's late night talk show, Thick of Thick the of Night. Thick of the Night. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bad and a terrible title. This is a great song. It's a little outdated for 2021, a little misogynistic. Talks about Boston Blackie, which is also a Chicago uh, burger joint. Boston oh, Blackies. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. I think I ate there on a birthday, like when I was 25 or four. Anyway, yeah. It's a birthday place. So the song, the lyrics are a bit unfortunate. It was originally performed by the Coasters, who were all black. So, you know, right. it's, it's a good, God bless. It's the era. But it, it, the lyrics are outdated. The performance and the song itself are super joyful. One of my favorites. And yeah, you see the comedy that they were bringing to their act uh, you see it in here, and then you see it later in, in another Coaster song, which we'll get to. Then we have this version of Money. So this is that first hit for Motown. The original is nice and bluesy, but this version with Pete Best is, well, it's, yeah, it's just not up to snuff, eh? It's like fake thundering. It's like his rolling and thundering. It never swings. Ringo has a swing in something that... Ringo could swing without swinging the song, if that makes any sense. He just had that special little touch that made anything feel like it was swinging. And Pete Best can't do that. The piano's missing, too, by yeah, the way. We're right. so used to the version with piano. This is a song John owns in other live and studio versions of this, certainly the official one for with the Beatles. He sounds nervous in this one. He's not, it's not that John vocal. It's weird. In a way, this is great to hear. It just proves that they were humans, and it proves that you can become something bigger if you just work at it. Yeah, and not just bigger, but arguably the biggest, you know, which is, right. you're right. It's cool hearing John start from here, and then, what, uh, just uh, a year and a half later, recording the version that would wind up on With the Beatles. It's pretty impressive, that growth. Right. You know, 300 gigs later. <laughs> the Beatles were totally the original Malcolm Gladwell, okay? <laughs> I think so. Malcolm Gladwell cites the Beatles as, I think, one of the 10,000-hour examples. I don't know how I feel about him. I'm mixed. I'm mixed on Malcolm. Yeah. I haven't heard enough. I haven't heard enough. Okay, who do you... We'll take a quick pause for our listeners to get to know Tony. You're you're a Tucker guy. You're a Glenn Beck guy even still. You love Kaylee McEnany. You love... <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not out there or anything. I just... <laughs> 
you know, I don't believe anything crazy. It's like being swarmed by hornets. You cannot think clearly. Well, one of my favorites is another George vocal, and it's this one. It's The Sheik of Araby, an old uh, vaudeville song. I guess this was based on a version by Joe Brown and the Brothers. I'm the Sheik of Araby. Araby, Araby, Araby. The world belongs to me. To me, to me, to me. Hey, night when you're asleep. Asleep, asleep, asleep. Into your tent. Oh, creep, wear me boots, I'm kicking up a dust Well, I've always liked this song. It's totally fun. I love the pep in it. I mean, this is one where actually, you know, Pete Best serves his purpose. Not to just keep picking on Pete Best, but he's the, you know, the different factor between the Beatles that made it and this Beatles that didn't. Yeah, he keeps the tempo pretty cool here. I like it. Well, I'm the sheep of the beat. That same fill, though, that drives you crazy. <laughs> yeah. Are those 16th notes? What What is he playing there? I feel like they're 16th notes that he just keeps. Yeah, we'll call them that. It's just like three minutes in. It's it's uh, this. Okay. My thoughts on the song. He hadn't developed yet as a singer, obviously. He had a bunch of lead vocals. George Harrison's voice improved uh, a, a million fold between this and even Don't Bother Me. At sure. least from a confidence and an actual maturity standpoint. You mentioned Joe Brown. Uh, Joe Brown and George Harrison became very, very close. Joe Brown was predominantly a skiffle performer, but George Harrison stood up at Joe Brown's wedding in 2000. Wow. And at the concert for George Harrison, Joe Brown sang, uh, he was given Here Comes the Sun. He was given the closer called I'll See You in My Dreams. And he, he sang That's the Way It Goes from Gontrapa, which is a lovely little song. So Joe Brown sang as many songs at that Harrison tribute that had Clapton and McCartney and Billy Preston and Tom Petty as anyone, which shows you the outsized influence he had on George Harrison's life. That's kind of a cool connection that from this song to the concert remembering George, Joe Brown was a big part of it. Too bad for the brothers, though. They weren't invited. <laughs> <laughs> He'd had a falling out with the brothers and the Siffers. <laughs> Then they, uh, then they do a Chuck Berry song, the famous Memphis, Tennessee, which uh, they did on the BBC a few times. It seems uh, they covered a lot of Chuck Berry, and this is another John vocal. I think I'll always prefer the original. I don't think anything ever beats. This song's been covered one zabillion times, and I still think the original is the best. Yeah, of all the Chuck Berry songs, this may be the most definitive original, I think. It's the one that it just seems impossible to cover. It's not only his playing, it's it's Chuck Berry's delivery of the vocal. Yeah. I do think the BBC version, John's at least more playful with it. Mm -hmm. This one, the whole thing just sounds a bit square. Yeah. Almost hesitant on the BBC version. He's almost playing along with it, which is, uh, I just prefer it a ton. And again... John Lennon, one of the greatest to ever do it, sounding tentative on record. This is the only time you're going to hear this. 
saw Marie, she was waving me goodbye With hurry home drops on her cheek, trickle from her eye Marie is only six years old, information please Help me get in touch with her in Memphis, Tennessee And George's solo is a little tentative, too. It's like kind of unsure of itself. They did this rarely, but it had kind of that surf guitar bend ending. Totally. And George's playing seems in this and even on the BBC take, it's the Chuck Berry riffs with the Carl Perkins influence, Mm. which is what's so great about George Harrison is his melding of those two heroes of his, Chuck Berry and Carl Perkins, makes such a huge part of what George Harrison was as a guitar player. Yeah, agreed. Well, then we have another one with uh, George, Three Cool Cats. So this is the B-side to the coaster's Charlie Brown and the B-side to your... The B-side to Searchin', yeah. Searchin', so that was like a Beatles coaster's 45. You must still have that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. It's, it is It is actually up on a shelf I can't reach right now, but when I can, uh, next time when this gets off, I'll show you the picture. Your that's sling. Good, great for the podcast. Yeah, I'm wearing a sling. <laughs> Not your furry costume. <laughs> well, that's different. It, has the cue washed off yet? <laughs> I've always loved this song, Three Cool Cats, ever since so I, good. I heard it. And I, I only heard it on Anthology. I, again, I never heard this until Anthology. It's so fun. I was working in a warehouse in the mid-90s, and we had a boombox, and I played this song and I remember we were all just counting CDs and putting them into boxes and shipping them out to record stores. That was the job. But I remember this groovy girl, Val, really dug this song and was like, ah, oh, I'm a cool chick. I don't know. It was just a fond memory of this song. Well, pop that first cool cat. He said, my, look at that man. Do you see what I see? Well, now I want that middle chick. I want that little chick. Hey, man, say one chick for me. Yeah. Chicks, three cool chicks. They look like angels from up above. I think cool cats really fell in love. I think cool chicks made three fools out. Three cool cats, three cool cats, three cool cats. It's a great song, and it's funny. Yeah. When they all take different turns singing, I want that little chick, please. Say Lennon doing that for one chick, for me, that stuff. Right. It's funny. It shows the Beatles, they're actually letting loose on this. It's another Lieber Stoller song. Oh. Thank you to, you know, again, Smokey Joe's Cafe. Yeah, man, it's the B-side of Charlie Brown, and this is before there was a Peanuts uh anything right this is before charles schultz i think right i don't know about that which came first the charlie brown the the song lyric or charlie brown the character i always thought the comic came first i always thought the comic strip was like 53 or something like that but i i could be wrong but they're not singing about charlie brown they're not singing about the lovable dude who's loves that redhead girl right. that's my uh, my wife's got uh, red hair so and i'm charlie brown 
I always pe- people still put a football in front of me, and I still fall for it. <laughs> and you still have that one squiggle of hair. <laughs> that that one's true. <laughs> I always thought it was weird that Charlie Brown was bald. And then my other favorite thing was that Peppermint Patty thought Snoopy was a weird-looking kid. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great bit. Remember Snoopy? It's that strange kid I told you about. He never says a word, but he's a good shortstop. So then they do a Carl Perkins song. You remember him. Uh, sure to fall in love with you. I don't know, man. Not my favorite. I wrote down shaky. This is a Paul vocal. Yeah, it sounded shaky to me. It is shaky. It's because Pete can't muster the country beat in this thing. Yeah, you need swing. Ringo's swing plays into what Carl Perkins was doing so well. Yeah, those awkward triplets throughout this thing that Pete Best is playing. And I'm sorry, like, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm comparing him to Ringo. This is less me trying to devalue Pete Best and more to say people who still bash Ringo need to hear this and understand what Ringo brought. I'm sure So yeah, the BBC version of this is the definitive one. This one does not have Paul's greatest singing. Paul's pitchy. Yeah, he's pitchy, man. That's crazy. It's weird, and I think because he's nervous in this one too. Right. The other thing, the definitive version is not live at the BBC. I lied. It is Ringo's cover on Stop and Smell the Roses. (laughs) That is a countrified version. That makes sense. He had that weird collaboration with that shady guy, Chips Moman. We did American recordings. Yeah, I mean, he's the one that recorded Neil Diamond and Dusty Springfield and Elvis's great Memphis record. What do you got on Chip's Moment? What do you mean? This is a whole podcast. Uh, In the 80s, Chip's Moment recruited Ringo to do a country album before Ringo got sober. I think it was recorded in Nashville. The tapes have never come out because Ringo said it was so embarrassing And Chip's moment kept saying, we have a deal. You're an ex-Beatle. I'm releasing this. And Ringo had the release stopped. But it was a really embarrassing court case for Ringo throughout the mid to late 80s, I'm pretty sure. What a hard time. Well, what I know about Chip's was that he was like a a businessman. And he was the one when Elvis went in there to record stuff, the colonel was going to have him sing like his colonel songs that he got a cut of. And Chip's was like, no, record what you want, man. Let's get this down. And so that's like how some of those hits became. They weren't part of the whole Colonel thing. (laughs) If Elvis had gotten rid of the Colonel, he'd probably still be alive. The Colonel's a killer. Something in the way she knows. What is this new lyrics? The penultimate song, TJ, is September in the Rain. This is one of those like uh, film songs. It was a film called Melody for Two. It came out in 1937. <laughs> now, who can you guess sings this one? <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, It's not the strongest. The one-two shooby-dooby-doo is, is a little rough. <laughs> and in fairness, they would improve on this formula with their cover of Taste of Honey. Sure, yeah. Well, he has that spooky ending at the end. That I dig. 
it ends a bit like You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. The arrangement of this made me think of the ending of You Know My Name. Oh, yeah, right. A uh, couple things on this. The key change out of nowhere has always bothered me. It's a strange key change. There's no like. Oh, I love it. There's no five chord that gets into it. It just slices right into that new key. I love it. I wrote it down as like, well, actually, I just wrote down key change, but I think that meant I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't hate it. Just weird not hearing that kind of lead chord into it. This is written by Harry Warren, who also wrote that Samori and is known for, I think, one of the most goofy, ridiculous songs in the history of recorded music, a song called Jeepers Creepers. And uh, there's a great parody of it on SCTV, by the way, that has Siskel and Ebert, which I think was Dave Thomas and, oh, I can't remember. It might have been John Candy and Dave Thomas doing Siskel and Ebert. Interesting. Doing like a variety act, singing a parody of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite bits ever on SCTV. Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get that hair? That song. Yes. So I am familiar weird. with that from like a Tom and Jerry or something. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so this is a, um, it's, it's a weird song. It's a weird kind of Paul thing that he'd later improve upon with taste of honey. Yeah. There is one moment in there where he says, yeah. And it sounds like a, yeah, he would do today. You see that, that little moment, you know, that part of the rock that's shiny. One, two, two, And then they close with like dreamers do. So Paul gets the last two in theory, the last three in theory. I think this is their best original from the, the audition of the three. No question. I, I totally agree. Paul wrote it in 1959. It's a very Paul song. I love the weird guitar intro for this. That kind of staccato bump, 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 bump. And it doesn't, it's an interesting chord progression or note progression for a band starting out. Yeah. Paul doing more of that crooning. It feels like he's writing a 50s pop song like Bobby V, but better. It sounds like yeah. kind of what he's writing. Well, there's energy. Yeah. And the I, yeah, 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 even kind of playing on some of those vocalizations from that era. It's really fun. I, I saw a girl in my dreams. And so it seems that I will love her. I think it's a great original. They gave it to the Applejacks, I think. Yeah. They got all that piano stuff in it, which I dig. Yeah, the Frosted Flakes turned it down. 
Right. <laughs> and so did the Fruit Loops. <laughs> and all the monster cereals turned it down. <laughs> Even Yummy Mummy turned it down. Which which was Yummy Mummy? <laughs> Yummy Mummy was like an early 90s or late 80s uh, monster cereal. <laughs> so, you know, it was Count Chocula, Frankenberry, Booberry. 12 years go by or whatever. Yummy Mummy. Yeah, Yummy Mummy was like vanilla. Oh, what flavor was it? Yeah. yeah. Vanilla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like fruit punch, you know, tropical mummy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Count Chocula and Frankenberry meet the fruity yummy mummy. Hey, have a bite. <laughs> it's new fruity yummy mummy cereal. Big. Yummy marshmallows. So monstrously big there. Monster mellows. With yummy mummy monster mellows. Fruity yummy mummy. Make your tummy go yummy. <laughs> well, thanks for sticking around. We got real silly today, but uh, you know, we are auditioning. We're hoping we pass the audition. Thanks, Mo. <laughs> thanks, Mo. Yeah. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> thank you for listening. And uh, with peace and love, we're warning you next week, we are going to talk about George Harrison's last album. Brainwashed in honor of his, uh, what would have been, I guess, his 78th birthday. I think he would have been 78 this year. One of the great tragedies of our time is the death of George Harrison at 58 years old in the same year that uh, 9-11 happened. So this album is meaningful in a lot of ways, and I'm excited to do a deep dive, a deep dish, if you will. Thank you. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. 